Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast all about video games that we love. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined as always by my childhood friend Chris Dow. Pops and peeps, tatties and neeps. And my adulthood friend Minty Booth. Claustrophobia has crashed. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! We have a YouTube channel. Please do check it out. Go to YouTube, search for Our Three Cents. You can find all manner of excellent video content that we've been producing there from the various miniseries that Chris has made, all about, I guess, the history of gaming and some of the uh, unexplored areas within that. And there's also a lot of streaming content that we're constantly uploading. You can also find us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash O3C podcast, if you want to subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on seeing us when we stream live. We also have an Instagram channel, at O3C Podcast. On there, you can find pictures that we're putting up about what we're playing and 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 all kinds of other behind-the-scenes little bits and bobs. And we've also got all of our video content on there as well. And we also, 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 also have a Patreon page. For those of you looking to get a bit more out of the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash our3cents and you can see a wonderful range of perks that you can get in exchange for pledging a few pennies of support. And we'd very much appreciate that if uh, if you did. We would. So this week we have our 21st favourite video games of all time. But before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz. The score stands at 40 points to Chris and 38 points to Minty. So let's see what happens. Which 32-bit Sega system was a competitor? Saturn. Saturn. Uh, The correct answer is, of course, the Sega Saturn. And Chris was in there first with the correct answer. Yeah, I was... Uh... There we go, three-point lead for Chris again. Yes. Still time, still time, and loads of points yet to come. So before we dive into what we've been playing this week, we have had a question come in from the social media sphere. Andy Smith has asked what we make of eSports, and if we think huge tournaments are good for the wider video games community or not. Ooh. Now, this is an area of gaming that... I admit I'm not very familiar with, even though I'm aware of the broad strokes of, of this side of the industry. And, you know, you see headlines about absurd prize money for esports tournaments, like I mean, literally millions and millions of dollars and stuff. So even if you're not actively engaged in that world, obviously, I think we're all aware of, of how big it is and, and yeah. how much it's growing. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get used to going onto the BBC Sport website to see the latest transfer news. And seeing articles about League of Legends, like it's a convergence <laughs> I, I never thought would happen. Yeah. One of the things Andy said when I was chatting with him about this is that he tends to follow the esports for whatever game he's playing at that time, which for him has been a lot of uh, Dota 2 and at the moment Age of Empires. And I think like therein lies where my interest sort of fractures from the rest of the online gaming communities, because... I also have a great interest in watching great players play games that I'm playing or, you know, some of my favourite games. But most of those games aren't the ones that are geared towards large-scale esports tournaments, but more towards casual events like GDQ. That's what I'm more likely to watch and engage in because, you know, that's where the games I like are being played. But I was watching a, a video on YouTube of 
like the most important esports moments of all time. And and I genuinely couldn't figure out what had happened in this one clip from League of Legends that led to everyone <laughs> participating to have just a collective coronary meltdown. I had I had no reference for how you play the game and, and therefore like the nuances of, of what was apparently a, a groundbreaking mechanic or, or movement of some kind, you know, that this this dude had pulled off. I, I just it I, I just nothing uh, you know, I just <laughs> totally lost on me. But I also remember quite fondly the idea of LAN parties being a thing in the 90s and early noughties. And I was chatting the other week with my friend Tom about one particularly notorious one he went to, which had like 850 people there in the conference centre of Newbury Racecourses. <laughs> and uh, an article I read about it said, and I quote, An issue was sanitation and refreshments. The toilets were absolutely disgusting and the staff were tossing food around with their bare hands. And and Tom said that several people had food poisoning and, and pretty much everyone just slept in the corridors as there were there was no accommodation to speak of. And I think, you know, the poor students' hard-earned cash had, had solely gone on the £70 entry fee. And I'm I'm sure about six kilos of dolly mixture and several crates of panda pops. <laughs> and to think that, you know, we've come from shitting yourself in an office cubicle to selling out 20,000 seat arenas in America and having a million people watching online. That's it's kind of mad to think that that's happened in the last 20 years. But I think that, you know, these larger scale events like GDQ are fantastic to normalise the video gaming community into popular culture and general, I guess, societal acceptance of the industry. And, you know, especially when a lot of GDQ events raise a lot of money for charity, that's that's great. And I think in terms of esports, again, it's, it's, it's a good thing for the industry in terms of giving the medium a, a bigger platform and more publicity. But I do think that there's, I mean, there's a potentially very, very dangerous collision that could happen between pay-to-win freemium games like like Fortnite and big cash prize tournaments, because that essentially boils down to just pure gambling. And I know that League of Legends is a freemium game, and that's one of the biggest esports going at the moment. So I, d- I don't know how that balance works and, and, you know, what restrictions are in place for, for playing competitively. Like, I, I don't know the game at all, but... You know, for games that are purely based around skill like Counter-Strike or, or Smash Brothers, then oh, I'm absolutely all up for that. And there is something quite electric about the atmosphere at those events, which is something that I really missed at the recent uh, Summer Games Done Quick event, yeah, which was obviously all done online this year. Like not having a crowd to interact with really does change the dynamic of the event. And and seeing that on the scale that you get with the big esports games is, I mean, it's very, very cool. And like you said a few weeks ago, when I was talking about Super Monkey Ball, Chris, yeah. when I was at the peak of my gaming powers... You would have been I there. Would have, you would have been there. And I would have absolutely relished the opportunity to play play one of those games on like a stage that size. Yeah. Just, you know, that would have been fantastic. What about you guys? I'm similar to you in, in that my knowledge of like big money competitive esports is pretty slim. But what, what I like that's happened over, like you say, pretty much the last... 10, 15, 20 years with games is that we, we've gone from games being a very casual thing that, that people used as as pure entertainment. So those that were interested in games, it was just like a hobby you did on the side and it was just a thing you did to relax or, or a thing you did to you know pass, pass a few hours in the evening. And we've now got all these different kind of prongs that have come off, at, come off of gaming that we've got you know, games that are exploring art and, and that games that are sort of digging into that side of things where people are using interactive you know the interactive medium that, that gaming is to to tell new stories and uh, and get players to think about that way 
Um, and then on the other hand, you've, you've got these massive sort of sporting tournaments, which is, is a totally different avenue where people can take games and it be a career for some people or it can be a, a competitive thing that's big enough to, to draw these massive crowds. And, and I think the fact that all that exists out of something that started with just Pong in, you know, in, the, in the late 70s is, is incredible that we've come a very long way in not that many years. Uh, and, and there's not really that many other sort of cultural mediums that, that have that range. And, and I think it speaks to a lot of what games have become in terms of their mainstream acceptance now that we have so many different avenues coming off of, of a, central, a central hub that when people say, I'm interested in games, it, it doesn't mean that they're going to sit at home and just play Mario. And it doesn't mean they're going to sit at home and, and only know Fortnite. Or it doesn't mean they're only going to sit at home and play weird sort of indie experimental projects. There's just, there's a huge range. And I, and I really like that it is something now that there isn't the same stigma because people can be involved in, in so many different ways. And, and I like that it's, it's developed like that over the years, that it's just, it's a huge, huge business, a huge industry. And there's something for everyone. Like people who don't play games, I'm sure they could if they, if they put five minutes into finding something that worked for them. And esports is just another, another part of that. The video I was watching about the most defining moments in esports, like the number one they had was Twitch being a thing. Yeah. And, you know, and it is mad, like how, how much that has changed things. Like I remember talking with, I can't remember who it was, but I was talking with somebody who's, he said, oh yeah, my son, my son likes his games, but, but he, he just, he just likes watching people playing games. Mm. Like I don't, I don't get it. And, uh, you know, it is, I mean, it's, it's mad that that has become such a big thing. But obviously, you know, that's what people want. I've, I've talked about some of my games and my list and how me and Alex used to sit and watch each other play them and, and, and what a lovely experience that was. And, uh, you know, it's not quite like that because, he's, you know, I'm not watching somebody who, who I care about as much as I care about my brother usually <laughs> when I'm watching somebody stream on Twitch. But uh, yeah. What about you, Minty? What do you think? Well, I'm very much in the same position as you two, like. I have very little experience with esports, and it seems like most of the games that are featured in sort of the the big name esports tournaments are just ones that I don't really care about. I don't think I've ever seen a screenshot of League of Legends, so I couldn't tell you what it's like. <laughs> I think about all the uh, all the all the great sort of sporting experiences that I've been privy to in my life. Just off the, off the top of my head, uh, the opening game of the of the World Cup a few years back, Robin van Persie's flying header against Spain. Ridiculous. Unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely Unbelievable. ridiculous. Unbelievable. My first American football game that I that I sat in a stadium for with my wife and my father in law. Incredible atmosphere. And then also watching people like uh, ZFG and Andy just get incredible times on beating Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time. I think for me, the thrill and the joy of esports is less about all oh, like the spectacle, the big prize money. It's seeing people play games at the best that they can be played. I can beat Link to the Past in maybe five hours, but then then to see uh, see somebody like Andy or Zelna just um, like clip through walls and beat all the dungeons in reverse order and still do it in like an hour and a half. <laughs> that's the sort of stuff that I that really blows my mind. So I think as a celebration of uh, of human ability and the incredible level at which these games can be played, as opposed to just being like, oh, oh, oh I've beaten the boss now. That's great. <laughs> that, that That's the real joy for me. But then I don't really like crowds. So <laughs> yeah, I think the focus on the sportsman for me is, is where the real joy is. 
things like awesome games done quick and the european speedrunner assembly those events that either have a greater goal like you know donating millions of dollars to various charities or even stuff like twitch plays pokemon yeah for, for the sheer novelty of it i think these high profile um, gaming events I think that's the, these are all good things that bring them into the public consciousness more in a positive way, as opposed to people being like, oh, well, this kid shot up a school and he also owned a copy of Doom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. exactly, exactly. I think one one particular moment I, I just, just sort of remembered was when Nintendo did like the Nintendo World Championships. And... Oh, yes, I was going to talk about those as well. We watched <laughs> yeah. them together, didn't we? We did, yeah. They were and fun. We, it was all great and it was love. It was just really, really good fun and really good natured and, and everything. Mm. The thing that really sort of got me was the Super Mario Maker relay race that they did. And this was before Super Mario Maker came out. Yeah. And it was just the best showcase for Super Mario Maker. It was so exciting. It was just it was just brilliant. It was great to see these great gamers be challenged. You know, it wasn't something that they you know could have practiced every day for like 20 years it was how, how good are you actually at mario on a core level how good is your grasp of the mechanics and uh, and that was great and it was also really really great that then they released those levels to download for for super mario maker when it came out i really enjoyed that so i don't know if that answers the question for you andy uh, but hopefully you've enjoyed hearing our thoughts on the matter if anybody else wants to uh, throw a question our way or a discussion point our way then we'll be happy to consider taking that on in a future episode. So what have we been playing in this last week? Minty, what have you been playing? Not a huge amount, it's got to be said. Obviously, the Mario collection comes out next week, so mm. I'm, I'm waiting on that. That was my that was my big purchase this month. I've just been cracking on with Saints Row 4. Oh, nice. Oh. How are you getting on with it? I think I'm nearly done. When I played it on the Xbox 360, it got to one of the later story missions and it kept crashing, so I was like, well, this keeps happening, so I'm just going to stop playing and say that i did but i'm a little bit further now so i'm in uncharted territory and it's it's still great fun i have to say also i, I haven't been playing many games this week but i have been watching Catherine play some on apple arcade over her shoulder oh cool including the last campfire oh yeah i've heard that's that's uh, quite nice it is quite nice actually yeah i only sort of saw some of it but it just seemed like a nice narrative puzzle platformer with, with your friend who's a pillow i mean that's always great I was having a look at Apple Arcade again, and there's there's quite a few good good looking games that are that are out at the moment. That I thought there's probably like three or four games that I think oh, I'd quite like to play those, and you think well, that's worth paying for like a month of it or something to play those. Yeah, I think the market is saturated with subscription bases. Yeah. like you've got Netflix, Stars Play, Prime, Apple TV, Apple Arcade. I, I think you're absolutely right with with the saturation thing. Like I had Apple Arcade, I really enjoyed it. Like back when we first started using it do you remember mm. we talked about it jonathan really early on yeah both yeah, really yeah. keen and then we both kind of just dropped off yeah and it's because i've got i've got too much other stuff yeah uh and for now it's kind of i i cancel my apple arcade to then pick up the xbox game pass on the pc and in in time because i'm not using that as much at the moment it's about to go up in price slightly i might cancel that for the time being and, and try out something else but there's lots of different ways to to access things and and the thing that always makes me quite sad is that you don't have it it's not it's not yours and that that was the real sticking point like i kept apple arcade for about six months to play grindstone yeah and then, yeah, exactly. then at that point yeah. i thought like I've, I've paid like 
60 fucking pounds to buy grindstone. Yeah, exactly. And you're going to pay 15 more when it comes out on Switch, so you can have it. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, yeah so I just I just cancelled <laughs> it. One, especially once it was announced for Switch, I thought, okay, let's just put this to bed for a bit. Let's yeah. go another, another route. So I finished playing my way through Super Mario All-Stars. I, I didn't end up going and playing Super Mario Bros. 2. I started it and thought, nope. you know, the game's fine, but... You know, I was in a, I was in the mood to play Mario games, and it's just it just feels <laughs> it, it feels so un Mario, you know. So I went straight on to playing Super Mario World, which I think might be the first time that I've played through it all properly. Good game, just fantastic. I think I might finally almost have a grasp of how to control the cape. Although <laughs> uh, I also then bought New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe. I mean, I played that when I had it on the Wii U. And uh, it was just brilliant, really, really great. Uh, but I didn't play Super Luigi U, or or I didn't didn't finish it anyway because it was very, very hard. It was very hard, and very I thought, tough, very tough. And I thought, oh no, I owe it to myself to uh, to to beat that. And I really wanted to play just through New Super Mario Brothers U again. So I bought that, finished the main game. Going to go back through and get all like the big gold coins, and I've have started on Super Luigi U, and I've, I've got got my head around it a bit more. I think it takes a little while just to get used to the different movement mechanics of Luigi, especially after yeah. I've been playing so much Mario. But also something I forgot: so no no levels have a checkpoint in them because if you play as Luigi, you only get ninety nine seconds on the timer to complete a level, and so it means yeah, it's hell. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> But it's good. It's really, really good. It reminds me more of Mario Maker. Like I was saying about the Lost Levels, like the Super Luigi U is very much like the Lost Levels to New Super Mario Brothers U. And oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's, uh, it is really, really good. I also had another couple of sessions on Sea of Thieves in the week as well, which was great because the September update brought with it dogs as pets, dogs. which is wonderful. Ooh, so dogs? I've got this, uh, this gorgeous snowy Alsatian called Philip who has a peg leg and an eye patch and a little pirate hat, and he's wonderful. <laughs> and the update also brought with it a new uh, new quest type for one of the trading companies, which me and my friend Tom got to take for a spin. And it's like the ultimate treasure hunt quest. So like one of the most common quests you'll pick up are just standard treasure maps, which will show an island and an X marking the spot where there's some buried treasure. And then you need to go to your main map uh, of like the whole sea and find which island it is and you know, set a course, go there, narrow it down, find where the chest is buried. But this new quest type has you come into possession of a magical compass that points its way to four map fragments scattered around the sea. And you need to hunt all four of these down to combine them to show the location of a treasure vault that will be on one of the islands. And the treasure vault itself is then jam-packed with piles of gold and treasure. But as soon as the vault door opens, the doors start to close and you only have three minutes before you're trapped inside. And you need to decide between... Like grabbing as much treasure as you can and getting it out of the vault or trying to solve like a big puzzle that's at the center of the vault, which will lead to an even bigger treasure. <laughs> it's very, very tense. Like me and Tom had a brief stab at solving the main puzzle, but we, I mean, didn't even know where to begin. And we managed to get like a fair amount of treasure out of the vault before it closed and flooded. It's such a great game. Like I was talking the other week about Journey and how that differs from other cinematic video games in that it places you as the conductor of the cinema rather than being constricted into a cinematic moment by the game, like, say, in The Last of Us. Yeah. And Sea of Thieves, I think, does the organic cinematic moments better than, I think, almost any other game I've played. 
like with, with no prompting at all, me and Tom stood on the pier of the outpost where we'd solved all of our loot after a, you know, a very tense and epic four-hour session where we'd fended off skeleton pirate captains, enemy sloops, and for a brief period, the Megalodon. <laughs> and we set a gunpowder barrel on fire below deck on our ship and watched our ship slowly go up in flames and begin to sink under the water, basking in the relief of having made it to the outpost to sell all of our loot. We had our instruments out playing a beautiful shanty, and then the sun began to rise and cast the most stunning golden light over the scene. And I mean, nothing compares to that in terms of having a cinematic moment in a game. And it's extraordinary how well the game is made that it allows you to naturally come to those moments without any prompting, restricting or guidance. It's just, it's incredible. Like Tom used a really good term to describe the game, which was, he said, he, it's an incredible story generator. Yeah. And that's what it is. You know, every time you go out for like a session, you've got this this whole other storyline going on this whole other pirate experience that could involve so many different things it's it's uh it's brilliant it's really really brilliant the other game i've played a fair amount of this week and to be honest has surprisingly blown me away to be honest is the remake of tony hawk's one and two it is incredible (laughs) it's incredible (laughs) i know i know like i had no idea it was going to be I mean, for a start, I didn't know it was going to look as good as it does. Yeah. It, is, it looks incredible. And just its performance is brilliant. You were talking the other week about speed of reload and how important that is in a game like Tony Hawk's, where you need to sort of restart and retry and stuff like that. And like loading times are really minimal. And it feels as good to play as I remember Tony Hawk's being, which, you know, means that it's playing as good as a very rose-tinted memory of probably what it was like to play Tony Hawk's 3 or something on yeah, GameCube. Yeah. But yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It's it's all I've played this week. I, I've had a very mm. a very heavy work week. Tony Hawk's turned up in the post on Wednesday and I've, I've had a few sessions with it. Like you say, it is as good a remaster as I've played in, in, in any game. Yeah, yeah. The visuals, like you mentioned, are, are fantastic. I think it's it's really nice for you know I, I played the original Tony Hawk's on the Dreamcast a few months back, so it's quite it's quite fresh in my mind. And Vicarious Visions have taken some really clever liberties with some of those stages. Mm. So like architecturally, they're they're basically like for like with with the PlayStation One and Dreamcast, just tarted up, obviously. But stylistically, they've thought about things like the the mall stage in oh, the first game. Yeah, it, it was always devoid of NPCs in, in the original, but here they've presented it as being like an actually abandoned space. Yeah. So you've got graffiti, little kind of fires, smashed windows and boarded up shops. And it, it looks amazing. Yeah. It's really, it looks really, really good. And equally things like the, the downhill jam level. Oh, I haven't got to that yet. <laughs> you're probably close, but it's like an empty canyon run from top to bottom that they haven't done too much, but they've added in little drones essentially like the racing drones that people use so it's, oh, yeah. it's like this this canyon has a secondary purpose now that's not just a weird skate park yeah so they, they've made the whole the whole game feels more purposeful mm. even though the structures of these skate parks haven't changed at all yeah like you mentioned with the with the, with the rose tinted controls thing they've they've done so well to think okay at what point did this series just fall apart? Yeah. And and as much as at the time, I, I didn't mind the underground games. I, I quite enjoyed uh, American Wasteland and then um, Tony Hawk's Project 8 when I first got it on the 360. It never really improved past Tony Hawk's 4 in, in mm. terms of like the core feeling of it. And and this remake includes, okay, all the tricks from, from 1. It includes the, the manual from 2, the revert, the trick modifiers, the flatland stuff from 3, and then the spine transfers from 4 and then just stops there. And and for doing that, it's they've really looked at it and decided quite bravely 
that we're going to draw a line at the point where we think the controls best served this game. Absolutely. I mean, because I mean, they're complex enough as it is. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I sucked at the game for a good few hours before. It was weird. Like, all of a sudden, it just, like, it was like my muscle memory just came out of retirement. And, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> on about, like, the fourth level or something like that. And uh, then I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is it. And I was, like, doing, like, manualing and pivots and stuff like that to get your multiplier up. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, ah, oh, there we go. And I was going from getting, like, 10,000 combos to, like, 150,000 combos. <laughs> yeah. It's about the feel, like you say. Like, for having not played Tony Hawk's for, for quite a long time, some people, I, I think they've nailed what it should feel like. Yeah. Because when when 1 and 2 were remade before as, as Tony Hawk's Pro Skater HD... Yeah. And then and then when Tony Hawk's 5 was rushed out a few years back, both of those were made by a developer called Robomodo and they were shit. They they were really really shit. And and the biggest issue outside of any of the superficial stuff, like they they looked fine, it was it wasn't that. It was that they just they felt awful to play. Mm. Like the the new additions with controls were dumb, the collisions didn't feel right, the gravity was off, like all the stuff that you you take for granted as, as working a certain way if you've grown up with the Tony Hawk series. Yeah. It, it wasn't there. And and then this remaster, honestly, within two runs, my fingers, like you say, the muscle memory was back and I was I was playing not as well as I did back in the day, but suddenly things were working as I expected them to work. Yeah. And and for some people, that'll be as soon as the first half pipe in the warehouse stage at the beginning. Yeah. You'll sail <laughs> over that and just, just instinctively know if, if yeah. it's a series you've really put a lot of time into. So, you know, whatever the intentions of Robomodo when they were kind of at the helm of the, of the franchise, they, they didn't get it right. And they, they didn't have even a sliver of the understanding that Vicarious Visions have shown in this. Mm. Like for, for someone who I really like the early games in this series, I, I can confidently say for me that this remake is at least as good as Tony Hawk's 3, which was my highest watermark for the series. Yeah. And, and if, if the game receives the kind of success I think it deserves... I, I really, really hope that either we get a remaster of three and later four, yeah. or, or even if they are just given the keys to make the next Tony Hawk's game, if this series yeah. is going to actually continue, I, I think it'll be stunning because they, they've shown a, a real love and care for it that, that has not been on the table for about the last <laughs> decade. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, that's like my take home is I want them to do three and four now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I said before when talking about, Tony Hawk's 3, the port that the Vicarious Visions did of Tony Hawk's 2 on the Game Boy Advance and, and of 3 and of 4 were <laughs> absolutely incredible. They know their shit. Yeah, they know, how to, they know how to make that feel right. It's just, yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, shall we move on to the rankings? Go on then. Let's do it. Go on. Starting this week, we have my game. Jonathan Dunn, let's do it. My game this week is the third game from this series in my list. And there's still six more from the series to come in my top 20. <laughs> it's a Zelda game. Oh, of course it is. It's Twilight Princess. Oh. So Minty talked about this game many, many weeks ago now, when it was his 64th favourite video game of all time. I mean, you can go back and have a listen to that if you want to hear his overview of the game. But in case you don't fancy doing that, I'm going to give a quick overview of the general setup of the game. It's a Zelda game. It means you're Link and you're fighting to save Hyrule from the forces of darkness and help Princess Zelda restore her place in Hyrule Castle. Forces of darkness in this game take the form of, uh, broadly speaking, the realm of Twilight, a harsh and unforgiving alternate world that is fusing itself with the light world thanks to Zant, the king of the Twilight, invading Hyrule Castle and trying to restore the series' big bad Ganondorf to the light world after he was banished to the Twilight Realm. 
Also thrown through from Twilight to Light was Midna, a plucky sprite who seeks Link out to help revive the light spirits to dispel the twilight-covered regions of Hyrule. And whilst Link is in these twilight areas, he takes on the form of a wolf who can run nice and fast, jump nice and high, dig nice and deep, and uh, howl a good old howl with the convenient vocal dexterity of, I don't know, an ocarina? Given the general tone of this setup of the story, made for an interesting counterpoint to the bright and colourful Wind Waker, not dissimilar to the darker tone that Majora's Mask took following Ocarina of Time, but the general atmosphere of Twilight Princess was incredibly oppressive and, and, and for me, sort of deeply compelling. And also, it, it's, it's an absurdly huge game. Like, it was easy for, for Wind Waker to feel big because of the Great Sea, but Twilight Princess was, was mostly land-based, and, and because of that, the expanse of the world was, was truly awe-inspiring. I mean... Obviously, Nintendo ramped that up about 60 gears with Breath of the Wild, but yeah, having yeah. a game like Twilight Princess on the GameCube was was mightily impressive. And I think that actually the world of Twilight Princess could have worked really well as an open world game if Nintendo you know, had wanted to take the series that leap here. So I think I've played through this game three times. I think I must have played it twice on the GameCube and then once on the Wii U with the HD remaster. Now, the remaster was, was lovely to have, and, and I, I desperately hope that we, we get it on the Switch. I don't think it benefited from the treatment in the same way that Wind Waker did, because I mean, Wind Waker looked absolutely stunning with its art style upscaled into HD with more modern lighting, and, and it was also a good opportunity to iron out some of the creases in the overall flow of the game. But Twilight Princess, because Nintendo had sort of caved and produced a more in inverted commas, realistic-looking Zelda game that was teased at the 2005 E3. And because people don't really know what they want and, and thought they didn't want the Wind Waker style, despite it being one of the greatest-looking games of all time. So that led to Twilight Princess going down a different route with its design. And, you know, it still looked great. And, and, and thankfully, it still felt the same to play as Wind Waker because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still built on the same engine, but they just had entirely different art assets. And from an aesthetic point of view, Twilight Princess has... Just a great identity, all of its own. It had really lovely particle effects and and bloom effects, and for a game that was about light and darkness, you really you really felt that. And uh, yeah, it's really really nice to look at from a very sort of dystopian point of view. I was so thrilled that I got to play it on the GameCube rather than the motion controlled mirror imaged Wii launch title that it also was released <laughs> as. Because I always forget the stupid mirror thing. I know, I know. So that Link is right handed on the yeah. on, on the Wii, so it feels right Dumb. waving for right handed people. Don't know how Minty feels about that. <laughs> I actually um, held the Wii mote in my left hand and the nunchuck in my right, so there, there was a little bit of dissonance there because I would swing with my left. And he would swing with his right, but I think for, for me, the the joy of actually having a, an actual left-handed controller for once outweighed the fact that the game was literally designed against me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those bastards at Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as I've said before, like I, I don't like motion controls. Certainly, I mean, not outside of VR anyway. Also, like the game was a perfect swan song for the GameCube, a console which I absolutely loved and had served me very well. I was also really thrilled to, to revisit it on, on the Wii U in its HD form. And yeah, I, I really do hope that we get the long-fabled HD Zelda trilogy on the Switch because I'd, I'd just love to play it again. Like, I think as a kid, when I had Wind Waker and I had the Zelda Collector's Edition on the GameCube, which had Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on there, I was really spoilt for choice for Zelda titles. And it was only really when I played Twilight Princess HD that it really struck me how much I loved it and how good I thought it was. It's possibly 
Now, I think it is. It's my favourite storyline in a Zelda game. Mm. And, I mean, Zelda, Zelda games aren't massively story-heavy. They all pretty much follow the same broad strokes and the same general setup. But this this one had, I mean, it had fantastic characters, including my, my favourite supporting character in a Zelda game, which is Midna. I mean, just Midna as a character alone, like, had so much complexity and depth and was really well written and brilliantly animated as well. So, you know, it really captured all the facets of this character from from the humour hiding the darkness and, and the pain underlying her desperation. Like, that character's journey is significantly more complex than any other character in a Zelda game, I think. I mean, well, to be fair, I haven't played Skyward Sword, so I can't, yeah, I can't speak to the characters in, in, in that. And I love how alive this world feels. There's so many great supporting characters that are all uniquely designed, admittedly some with rather strange facial features, but it gives <laughs> all of them uh, just a real sense of identity rather than having, you know, generic models copy and pasted into each town. And so many little touches as well, like just the animals that are around in the game. Like initially, you miss the fact that there is just a cat just fishing for some lunch by a riverside. But but when you're in wolf form, you can you can chat to all the animals, and and that can lead to loads of other side quests and hidden secrets. One of the other things you can do when you're in wolf form is is talk to the uh, the, the spirits that are still lingering around, and it again that just adds a whole other atmosphere to the game. Sort of it reminded me of when you know Lord of the Rings when Frodo ever puts on the ring. And everything goes all like all dark and monochrome and swooshy and spooky. Like for a start, if you put the ring on, like surely, like if you put the ring on and you see that, you've got to think mm, maybe this isn't. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't be using this. I don't think this is quite quite <laughs> quite right here. But it felt like that. It sort of honed in this focus. You sort of had a heavy vignette on the screen, and uh, and you know everything would get a lot more reverb on it. And yeah, it was just a very very definitive atmosphere. And I I just I loved it. I loved the fact that. Because you sort of dipped in and out of it, as when you get the ability to sort of change into wolf form at, at will, you're, you're dipping in and out of the Twilight Realm. I just love the fact that there was this whole other world running alongside this world. And every time I'd, I'd find somewhere new, I'd think, oh, I wonder what's hidden here. Or I wonder what's, you know, just on the other side of this, uh, you know, of this atmosphere. It's one of the things I love about the way Nintendo have done second console Zelda games like Majora's Mask or Spirit Tracks or Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, where... You know, they've used the same engine and a lot of the same art assets from the first console outing and could very easily just churn out a sequel every year, but they don't. Like they really take their time to consider why a Zelda game needs to be released, what it can do differently. And, and, and also, I think they do really consider how it will weigh up against its console counterpart. Like Twilight Princess would have felt very, very different if it hadn't followed Wind Waker in the same way that if Majora's Mask had been Link's first 3D outing, a lot of people would have spat on it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Twilight Princess not only looked very different to Wind Waker, it had, it had such a different tone, such a different story, and really warranted being another Zelda game on the GameCube. And I think in reality, if Twilight Princess had been released first on the GameCube, and the, the, you know, the fandom got the serious grown-up Zelda game that they were crying for, because it's such a dark, brooding and bleak tale... I think they'd welcome Wind Waker with open arms if it was following it. I also think that Twilight Princess is actually one of the more linear games in the series. And that helps make the enormous world feel a bit bit more easily navigable. And Minty alluded to this when he was talking about it, particularly with some of the criticism you, you waged against some of the items and weapons in the games. And a lot of people have over the years. But I don't really mind that a lot of the items you get are 
basically only have like a one dungeon use. You know, sure, I would love there to be more places to use the spinner, just like in in Metroid Prime, you, you, you want to find more and more morphable sections because it's really fun. And that's something Nintendo had more of in, in Metroid Prime 2 because it proved so popular. And I think if the spinner had spilled over into Breath of the Wild, say, then, you know, we could have seen a much more versatile side of it. But then we did it and we got it in Hyrule Warriors as a weapon. So that's kind of fun. But but when it's as fun to use the spinner in the places that you can use it as it is, I really don't care. Like that whole dungeon is so much fun. And it means that I get genuinely excited about getting to that dungeon for the whole game <laughs> leading up to it. <laughs> I think that Twilight Princess is, is, is always going to be a less talked about game because of the enormity and striking nature of Wind Waker and the groundbreaking nature of Ocarina of Time and the rebuilding of said ground and then breaking it again nature of Breath of the Wild. It's a game that I'll always hold close to my heart. And, and I, I think it's I think it's the best escapism I've experienced in a Zelda game. Like... Most Zelda games I play, I can put down, I can pick it up again, and it's great. I love them. But something about Twilight Princess, like, sucked me in. You know, it's a world and a story that that really consumed me. And, yeah, I, I really hope that we get to see that on the Switch again. Because oh, I just, I'd, I'd love to just hold myself up somewhere and, and, you know, journey through the game one more time. Yeah, at least. I, I, abs- I absolutely love it. Good. yeah it's it's just a really nice game isn't it it's quite quite a slow paced game Mm. i think which really sort of lends itself well to the nice sort of gently bleak aesthetic the bloom the gentle soft edges Mm. i'd really like to play it again um it, it, it didn't quite have the uh bombast and the action some action adventure titles but that doesn't matter really it's just Mm. It's a Zelda game. It's good and it's nice. <laughs> really love it. Excellent. Moving on, we have Minty's game. Minty, can you please tell us what your 21st favourite video game of all time is, please? So, for today's game, I have a representative for the criminally underappreciated system on my list. The Personal Computer. Oh, hello. Mm. Bloody mouse and keyboard, isn't it? Well, that's it, yeah. Like so many <laughs> other games on this uh, on this system. The majority of my playtime for this game was uh, replaying the demo over and over and over. <laughs> and for something that was slapped onto a CD-ROM as part of a Here's What's Coming Out This Month, included with a dog-eared PC zone I got off a cousin, it was <laughs> a fairly generous and plump demo indeed, considering you can play it however you want, build whatever you want, Design each stage in whatever way you want. As long as you can fill the great goals of the modern age for each stage, customer satisfaction and company value. Along the way, why not build a literal death trap to get rid of your more unsavoury guests? Why not pluck a customer out of the air as they smash a park bench and then drop them into the ocean to drown them? <laughs> the choice is yours. In Roller Coaster Tycoon. Fantastic. Fantastic. There we go. So you might not have gathered from my gentle and quiet demeanour on this podcast, but I love a roller coaster. I went to Disneyland about 20 years ago, and between the the, the big three rides that they have there, uh, Space Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, and uh, the Indiana Jones ride, I must have been on them at least 60 times. We actually went twice, and in between those two visits, um, they... 
they they gussied up the Indiana Jones ride so that um, you went backwards the second time we went. That's cool. It added nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We went during a quiet period, so there were no cues, so just the constant thrill of the wind smashing into your face as you slowly learn every twist, turn and loop. That forbidden knowledge never diminishing the excitement, but enhancing your experience. Then you become one with the elements. A swing rides can fuck right off. <laughs> of course, you can't go to a theme park every day. You can't. You can't. <laughs> but what can you do every day? You can go on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> so, in addition to watching first-person videos of uh, people riding dueling dragons and other such contraptions, why not open up a gentle management sim and create your own roller coasters to delight and terrify hundreds? So here's a disclaimer. That's part of the game that I'm really, really bad at, actually designing the roller coasters <laughs> themselves. They're always too intense when I attempt to make them. They're too nauseating. And every ride is measured by three parameters, intensity and nausea, but also excitement. And I have never been able to get that balance right. But the design of the park as a whole, Park management, placing handymen, engineers and the like to cover the majority of your park at the thriftiest price point. Cash flow, revenue, bank loans, R&D. Now that's my bread and butter. (laughs) And this game is one of two that helped me realise that whilst I'm not so hot at artistry and generally creative things, I'm a shit hot events manager. (laughs) You are. (laughs) Thankfully, not being good at something that teams of incredibly experienced people take years to do doesn't hinder you in your journey to create the best roller coaster each map has a wealth of pre-made coasters that you can just plop on the top of the map and they can just quietly generate cash money for you if you take the reins though you can make them go underground through a tunnel maybe loop around a tree uh, for a little bit of a sexy danger or maybe even past a statue of a dolphin that gives a merry squirt as one of the car passes Uh, i do that as well (laughs) yeah yeah The world, or rather the map, is your oyster, and it's really vindicating to see your vision for a great theme park that operates within the parameters of the level succeed. It's really great. It's really great. It's just one of those ones that you can just load up a map, be at for about an hour, set it down, and then come back to it again. It's just a pick-up-and-play game. We love to see it. Rollercoaster Tycoon. Lovely. Fantastic game. I hear, because I've never played it. Oh. I felt like I would have been betraying my uh, my, my dedication to Theme Park, the uh, the rival series. Because I mean, even though I had I had Theme Park yeah. on the Saturn and uh, never really understood it. Fortunately, we knew how to put a cheat in to get infinite money, and then I just you know slowly fill the park with all the rides that you could. Toilets, lots of toilets. Um, <laughs> I did, however, and I think I alluded to this in an episode. Not too long ago, I, d- I did get really into Theme Park World on the PC, which was like the first more 3D one. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. loved that. I really enjoyed the the park management side of things. I seem to have quite a knack for it. I was very, very disappointed with the, the free-to-play Theme Park game that came out on phones because that... Um, bullshit. That, that well, bullshit. Yeah, it, it, it was. And uh, I didn't realise it when I spent all my money on it because well yeah because uh, we, we, we know we know i we know i don't do well with yeah. those sorts of games <laughs> did you play roller coaster tycoon 2 and roller coaster tycoon 3 nope <laughs> one and done yeah one and done this, this completely satisfied me 
because I know that they added one of the games added like water parks into it, which I was always really intrigued by because I love a I love the idea of a water park. I, I, I mean, the reality of a water park is 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 a is a literal cesspool. It's I mean, <laughs> it is it's the, like I'm just a massive petri dish. It's just yeah. awful. Just just the world's worst soup. <laughs> people soup. Yeah, exactly. If I wanted to taste, you know, a thousand people's bowls, then I'd um probably have a good look at myself (laughs) 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 excellent stuff minty thank you lastly but not leastly we have christopher dow can you please tell us about your 21st favorite video game i'd love to now last week we had a mr jonathan dunn reflecting on mario sunshine which was a game that had already been present on uh, minty's list some weeks previous and one that had been announced as making its return for the Nintendo Switch imminently in the Super Mario 3D All-Stars collection that we're all kind of hankering for in a few days. This week, I'm going to reflect on another Mario title that has been previously exalted by Minty, and that will also be completing its move to our beloved hybrid handheld in, in the near future, because it's Super Mario 3D World. Ah, oh, fantastic. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I said last week when this came up, when we were talking about the port, that I think 3D World is, is the perfect cocktail of, of 2D and 3D Mario games. And, and for me, it was a title which effortlessly mixed the sensibilities of the more stage-based gameplay of something like Super Mario World on the SNES or New Super Mario Brothers for, for any of that series. And, and combine that with like the exploration of, of Galaxy or 64 or, or more recently Mario Odyssey. When it was first previewed, I remember kind of reading about it probably on Eurogamer or online or something in those halcyon days of the Wii U, I, I remember being a bit unsure about the decision that they'd made to to make movement in this game a little more digital than I was expecting for a 3D Mario game. So running now has its own button, uh, like in the 2D titles, rather than just kicking in when you, you have the analog stick at full tilt. And and directional control is is almost fixed, like in into diagonals, like to kind of like eight cardinal directions, so that players that were playing with the Wiimote at the time could still take part and, and not feel like they were missing out. But, but in practice, none of those things really mattered because the game was built, as I say, with, with this weird hybrid sensibility of being a 2D and 3D Mario game almost at once. The levels in this game are, are great. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about, about some of them as we go through, but they are slightly more linear than the open fields of, of Mario 64 and its spiritual successes. Every stage has like a flagpole at the end of it with the, with the preceding obstacles that allow you to attempt to, to clamber up to the top for a traditional Mario reward. And, and the 3D space is often sort of truncated slightly to, to funnel you along smaller paths. So it could have the potential to feel restrictive if the game didn't use all of this simplification to just double down on being irreverent madcap fun at all times. Like for many years now, I think that Mario has been a series that in its core platform entries has always aim to be playful, like above anything else. The, the first thing Nintendo seems to do when they when they start developing a new Mario game is think, okay, how do we make this fun? How do we make it something so just the act of playing it is, is fun and, and joyful? And that gives them the opportunity as well because they they built this platform genre really from the ground up from, from the NES days. It allows them to kind of subvert it and, and you know, take genre codes that they codified and then mix them up slightly. And... I think this game in particular mixes things up and, and pitches perfectly the times when a player needs a change or a breather and, and when you need a refresher on, on mechanics that you might not have played for a few levels as well as when you just need some 
some total low stakes fun. And Super Mario 3D World is a game which it knows when to offer a more traditional Mario challenge. Like there are some really tough stages in it, but it also knows when to resort to kind of power up gimmicks because this game introduced the the lovely Cat Mario Bell and, and also the Double Mario cher- Cherry, which are, are both really really nice power ups that I think really do expand Mario's move set nicely. But then it also knows when to take a stage and say, okay, the flagpole is is inches in front of you when you start, but as soon as you move, the flagpole will grow legs and run away into the distance. <laughs> It's 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 a really funny game. It's it's a funny game, and it's always fun as part of that. I, I think this has come up before that 3D World was one of the games that came out during my teacher training year, and it kept me going. It was one of those games that kept me sane in what was a, a very very tough year. I had New Leaf on the 3DS. That was like a real savior title for the time. Uh, I had Mario Kart 8 came out that year as well, and, and 3D World as well on the Wii U. They were these kind of tentpole releases through the year where I had so little time for myself that I needed that kind of chunky, colourful whimsy of, of Nintendo's best franchises just to just to survive. Yeah. They, they were really like vital things for me that I, I knew it was something that even if I only had 15, 20 minutes in the evening before I went to bed, I, I could just have a bit of an escape for a bit and, and it was it was going to be enough to kind of just top me up for the next day. The, the stages in 3D World as I mentioned, they, they fit into these small play sessions really well because they seldom last more than a few minutes to get through in, in regular play. You can obviously go back like you can in most Mario games and scout out secret coins. Uh, and for this release, at least on the Wii U, you could find Miiverse stamps as well that you could use to then customize messages you left on Miiverse. I don't know how they're going to figure that into the Switch port, if at all, uh, which will be a shame because it was a nice little bonus collectible. But you know, we'll, we'll see if they find a way to work that in. But all of the stages always felt deliberately bite-sized and and manageable and for this reason it became one of the only mario titles that i can recall where sometimes i would i would return to completely beaten stages so stages i'd already found everything in but i'd go back to them just because they were fun and it was only going to be a quick five minute detour and it felt that it would be worthwhile just playing it for the for the hell of playing it just just for the fun of it and early on i I think maybe in the game's second or third world like it's been a while since i played it there's a quick, largely linear stage that's presented as a Mario Kart track. And it has little boost pads that speed up your character as you run over them. It's got music from the SNES game. To quote one of Jonathan's favourite words, it is absolutely joyful. <laughs> There's no other way to really talk about it. It's just something that I enjoyed running through so much that for a few days, every single time I booted the game up, I'd just have a play of that stage first. And it just kind of set me into the rhythm of, of 3D World. Let me know, you know, Things are good, things are safe, and, and you're going to have a bit of fun tonight. And there was no particular gain in that other than just maybe accruing the odd extra life, perhaps. But it was just something I did because I liked doing it. And and I think that really summarizes a lot of why I enjoy this game so much, that it's always geared towards making you have a nice time. Modern gaming these days is dominated mostly in terms of the most popular titles by by two camps. You've got the hyper sort of competition of online gaming that we talked about a little bit when we said about esports earlier, but but really I'm talking about any games as like games as a service, like things like Fortnite or, or Apex Legends or, or the most recent Call of Duty, the things that are stuffed with loot boxes and competition and everything else. And then in the other camp, you've got the sort of ultra polished AAA narrative action games like The Last of Us or Uncharted or, or God of War and stuff like that, where they're meant to be this kind of start to finish roller coaster cinematic experience that you play from title screen to credits and then they're just done on the shelf or, or 
or sold and, and forgotten about. And it's interesting to think where something like 3D World fits into that because it's a paradigm that doesn't really have a spot for just throwaway fun. You know, it's, it's a game that I was happy to play for 10 minutes or the best part of an evening if I had an evening free. And it's a game that allows multiplayer over its entire runtime, but loses absolutely nothing if you play it as a solo experience. So it's it works best of both worlds in that sense. It's, it's a game that's really accessible and readable, even if you're not kind of like a big gamer. Um, and, and crucially, it's a game where returning to a stage that you've beaten never felt like a failing of the game or, or me as a player. It was just the option was there. And if you wanted to, you, you could do that as much as you liked. I think... 3D World never felt like a conquest in the same way that Odyssey does, for instance. And it's not as expansive, of course, because there are these short levels. Instead, it's more like a toy box. And in the same way as a kid, you might have picked out like your favourite toy car or action figure or something, even when you might have just got new stuff for your birthday or Christmas or whatever. 3D World just exists. And with its self-contained little diorama stages, it, it just says, if you want to have a go, it's, it's right there and, and it just aims to make you happy there was a turning point for me as my kind of xbox 360 achievement obsession started to wane where i wanted to have fun with games again <laughs> i think i really lost that in that generation that aside from a few titles that i've obviously mentioned like things like crackdown things like peg almost recently that became games i went on to really love i'd often play games and it felt more like a job that i was just doing because i wanted a number to go up and it was around that time that I picked up a Wii that was like the, the tail end of, of the Wii's lifespan. And one of the first games I played through was Mario Galaxy. That was the title, honestly, that, that reminded me truly what video games could be and, and what fun was meant to look like in, in the medium. When I was putting this list together, Galaxy and 3D World were interchangeable in this spot, like right up until our cutoff. I'd have like one week where I'd think, okay, I think I, I'll, keep, I'll keep Galaxy on there because it's, you know, it's a fantastic game. And then the next week I'd think, but... There's something more personal about the way I played 3D World and, and I want to make sure that's kind of spoken about. And it would just change each time I, I pulled up the spreadsheet. I've mentioned a few times about trying to limit the number of entries from one franchise on this list. And for me, I, I felt like I could end up with a top 10 that was almost exclusively Mario, like just, just <laughs> running down the list. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of showcase some of the other things I really love. So whilst Galaxy is very much its own game and it's, it's very much its own brilliant, peerless game as well, I felt that as much as it was Galaxy that reminded me what fun was, 3D World was the game that doubled down with kind of this toolbox of, of jocularity. And at a time in my life when I was I was just desperate to have five minutes of, of just time away from from thinking. And and that's the reason this is the one that's that's made the cut. But I think 3D World for me represents a very specific point in, in games for me. And and I can't wait to to play it again. Both games, as, as me and Minty have now said, are incredible. And in the same way you've said, Jonathan, that you're excited for me to finally experience sunshine fully in, in a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait for you to play both Galaxy and, and 3D World because yeah. they are, they're just outstanding experiences. They're, they're just some of the very best games in, in the very best series. And yeah, February for this game can't, can't come soon enough because I, I really want to, I really want to get back into it and, and, you know, potentially use it for the same same reason I did on the Wii U, that it's just a little break away and just an opportunity to kind of sit back and, and let some flashing colours dance in your eyes for a bit, just to remind you that, no, thing, things are all right. Things can be all right. <laughs> Wonderful. I cannot wait. Yeah, there's nothing like it. I think 3D World is probably the one-off, if not the greatest 3D platformers that's ever been made. It's just 
self-contained after self-contained little like you said diorama of perfection every single level is just so perfectly crafted and it is just so much fun it's such a joyful experience it, is. it really is just one of the most wonderful games i've ever played there we are croc legend of the gobbos <laughs> uh. <laughs> tank controls to turn <laughs> yeah <Yahoo! laughs> So there we have it, another three games. First of all, we had The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, and then we had Roller Coaster Tycoon, and finally Super Mario 3D World. What a cracking trio of games. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share the podcast on social media. We'd very much appreciate that. You can engage with us on our social media channels. We're on YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, Facebook. Or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. My house is at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. If you're really enjoying what we're doing and fancy supporting the podcast just a little bit more, then please do check out our Patreon page as well. And we'd be very, very glad of the extra support. In the meantime, have a great week. Enjoy some games. And we'll see you next time for our 20th favourite video games of all flipping time. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Spaceships, magic swords, intergalactic empires, dead gods, and creatures from beyond the moon. What mad universe could contain all these fantastic visions? What Mad Universe is a bi-weekly podcast delving into the misty origins of sci-fi and fantasy, pop culture and genre tropes. Take a cosmic trip on What Mad Universe podcast on the Greenlit Podcast Network.